0: And Welcome to the History of Vikings. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Matthias Nordvig, who teaches at the University of Colorado Boulder in the Nordic Studies program. He teaches pre-Christian Nordic mythologies, Scandinavian folklore, North Atlantic and Greenlandic literature, reception history of the Viking Age, and much more. He has conducted fascinating research on volcanoes in Norse myth, and he also runs a great YouTube channel called the Nordic Mythology Channel, which I highly recommend and we'll put a link to in the description below. And you can also follow him on academia.edu via the link in the description below. Dr. Nordvig, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me here. It's my pleasure. Well, our topic of discussion today is one that I get very excited about, and I know a lot of people listening have requested uh, that we cover it more, and that is Viking Age Iceland. Now, uh, the last time that you were on the podcast, we talked a little bit about the sagas of Icelanders and how we can use these sagas as a historical source for the Viking Age. But, um, talking more about the historical processes, uh, starting off the interview of the discovery and settlement, uh, what are we looking at for sort of how the Vikings discovered Iceland and then came to settle it?
1: Yeah. So, um, our, uh, for a very long time, our, our source material has uh, been uh, the medieval historical writings from Iceland, um, such as the Book of Settlements and the Book of Icelanders, and then of course uh, the sagas of Icelanders, as well as as, as a what you could call more of a literary complementary uh, body of texts that could inform us a, a little more on what. Uh, went on in the process of of the settlement of Iceland and also its discovery, uh, because uh, what we have in the Book of Settlements and the Book of Icelanders are not very uh, developed stories uh, about the early settlement. Um, For instance, the Book of Settlement recounts uh, about 400 and uh, close to 20, close to 420, can't remember the exact number, um, of these early uh, settlers who uh, came to Iceland and claimed land, and most of these uh, stories are very short entries where you get a name, you uh, get their place of origin, and then a couple of details of what happened as they took land, and then they go on to uh, to the next person. Whereas the book of Icelanders gives us this very comprehensive um uh, a, a narrative a, a well-designed narrative that puts icelandic history in context of european history as well uh written by uh, the uh, first uh, icelandic historian whose uh, ma- uh, whose literary productions we have available to us his name was ari frodi now he um based some of his um, um he was writing in the 1120s and he based some of his uh, 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 account on an earlier Icelandic historian uh, named Saimunder in Frodi, whose works we don't have available to us. So we have this body of texts and this, uh, these early historical writings, and, and we can see that the Book of Settlements has a very uh, indigenous Icelandic feel to it. It, it seems very folk tradition-based, if, if, if you could call it that. And Then you have the Book of uh, Icelanders, that 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 is more of a designed literary work that uh, complies with the ideas of of historical writing at that time.
0: Interesting, interesting. So, in terms of the uh, discovery of Iceland, maybe for those who aren't aware, around what year was? Iceland discovered, and what group of Vikings, or I should say, where did the Vikings who did discover Iceland uh, originate from?
1: Yeah, so this is the uh, very interesting question. Um, so according to Ari Frodi, uh, Iceland uh, was settled, you know, the, the settlement began in 874. And um, uh, this was preceded by a couple of visits to Iceland, so to speak. We uh, first have a, um, I believe he's actually mentioned as a Swedish uh, uh, traveler who who goes uh, uh, north and sails around Iceland. His name is Garda, and he gives the, the country the name Gardaey, which means Garda's island. And then we have, uh, according to these historical texts, another man named Floki, uh, uh, Raven Ravenfloki, who... Uh, sailed to Iceland and tried to settle there, but his uh, his settlement wasn't uh, uh, successful because uh, he he forgot to make sure to collect enough uh, feed in in the form of hay for his uh, cattle uh, during the summer period. When uh, because he realized there were so many fish and and other wildlife that he could hunt, so he was focused on that. And so when the harsh winter came. Uh, his uh, his cattle died because there wasn't enough food for them, and this is an this is an interesting little uh, 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 story in in the context of the discovery of Iceland. Because what this tells us is that the early settlers to Iceland also realized that the climate was was harsher there, and and so this kind of looks like the the memory of the first realizations of how you actually uh, um, um, sort of transpose the the agricultural. Economy from from mainland Scandinavia and the British Isles to Iceland in this colder climate. And his uh, Hratanafloki is is the one accredited with giving the the country its name, Iceland, uh, sort of as as a disappointment. In fact, because when he realized that all his cattle had died and he had to go back to Norway, he he went up to a, on a mountain top and looked over a fjord and saw that it was. Um, full of ice, and the story goes that he said, "Oh, we will call this Iceland," and then he left. The next, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it's kind of a funny tale, actually. The next person who uh, uh, who is mentioned in the uh, sources to to have had a uh, successful settlement is Ingolvr Arnason, who came from Norway and uh, managed to establish a um, a, a, a functional farm in uh, the bay of Reykjavik, where we have the, uh, the, the capital of Iceland today. And in in the town of Reykjavik, uh, a, a, um, a house has been found from about this time, and it would be too far of a stretch to sort of uh, connect it directly to Ingolvr himself. But uh, uh, archaeologists have excavated a house, and uh, based on a tephra layer that is a uh, volcanic ash that, has, uh, that fell around 871 to 2, uh, they have dated it to that period of time. So that seems to coincide very closely with uh, what the written material tells us is the date that people started to come to Iceland. However, there's a, a, also a new discovery in the eastern part of Iceland. Called uh, uh, a place called Stolvadafjodr, where they have found a house that uh, looks to be somewhat 70 years older. So basically, uh, uh, pushing the dates of the earliest um, um, appearance of uh, Scandinavians in Iceland to around uh, the year 800. So when we Combine uh, literary material with, uh, uh, with archaeological finds and new archaeological discoveries. Uh, it looks like from the beginning of the 800s, that's when we have the first Scandinavians coming there. And, um, and then uh, we can perhaps say that uh, um, the settlement process is fully uh, established and ongoing from the 870s. Now there's also a, an interesting caveat to all of this, and that is that um, uh, Ari Frodi mentions that there were uh, some uh, Gaelic uh, Christian hermits living in Iceland uh, called Pápar, which is a, uh, is a is a word that uh, associates with the, uh, pastor or priest, and uh, and they they lived there before uh, the Scandinavians came, and then the story goes that they left again. Uh, because the Scandinavians were pagans, but uh, uh, he says that uh, people have found various religious items, such as books and crosses, that they left. And we also know from other uh, uh, literary accounts from the British Isles um, that uh, that there were Gaelic uh, peoples who were exploring the North Atlantic and settling in the islands up there. Now, Iceland as such is not mentioned or at least it's not identified as Iceland, but it is very possible that uh, that that was something that happened before uh, the Scandinavians chose to come. And um, to answer your question of where did these people come from, so in the literary material, we are told that most of the Scandinavians, uh, if not all, uh, came from Western Norway. And uh, then we have a few individuals who are mentioned as coming from the British Isles, and um, and p- perhaps like a handful of Danes and Swedes as well. But uh, the interesting thing about the literature is that it sort of uh, it, it plays up the importance of Western Norway in context of the settlement of Iceland, and plays down the uh, the other uh, ethnic groups or or whatever we want to call them uh, who seem to also have been involved with the settlement. Recent. Uh, genetic uh, investigations of uh, historical uh, skeletons from from Iceland and also the current population seem to suggest that there was actually a very, very big group of people coming from the Gaelic-speaking communities in the British Isles, uh, uh, along with the Scandinavians. So what might actually have been the case in the early history of Iceland is that it was a very multicultural society in that regard.
0: How interesting. Now, in terms of dealing with the sagas, and you know, dealing with the sagas as a historical source for the Viking Age, I guess first off, what uh, sagas deal with the discovery and settlement of Iceland, and then this is kind of a whole nother question, but what personalities within those sagas? Uh, what characters are very notable and influential in the island's discovery?
1: So, the sagas that deal with the uh, discovery and settlement of uh, Iceland are called in in Icelanding and Old Norse the Íslandiga sögur, and that means the sagas of Icelanders. And um, they they comprise uh, some somewhere around forty sagas. That have been written uh, from the 13th century, uh, a few of them perhaps in the late 12th century, and then into the uh, 14th and uh, um, close to the 15th century as well. So some uh, a decent amount of time after the historical uh, proceedings of the settlement, and uh, several of these sagas are based off of historical figures that are mentioned in the Book of Settlements. For instance. uh, figures such as Eid Skatlakrimson and, uh, also Thorover Mostowski. And, uh, I would say that perhaps the, uh, the most prominent sagas are all centered around, um, this, uh, um, southwestern part of Iceland, Borkafjordr, which is the, uh, area, uh, north of, uh, modern day Reykjavik. Um, and Snifesnes, which uh, is the peninsula that uh, is just north of Borgarfjörður. Of course, there are also sagas that center on uh, on other parts of Iceland, but I would uh, I would say that the prominent ones that are focused on the early settlers um, they are from that area, and uh, this makes a lot of sense because uh, this area seems to have been perhaps the along with the southern part of Iceland, uh, south of, uh, of Reykjavik, uh, it seems to have been the sort of economically uh, most successful area with uh, the richest farms and um, also uh, functioning as power bases for various chieftains that in the medieval period, and especially in the 13th century, would be competing for power in Iceland. So what we have in the 13th century is the so-called Sturlung age uh which is uh, um uh, named after the family that uh, Snurri Sturluson belongs to which was one of the uh, really uh, um uh, big families in 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 terms of uh, 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 the strife that was going on at the time in, in this period uh because what we're really dealing with in the early 13th century in Iceland is a is a, is a status of civil war and uh this um this takeover from uh, from Norway that is uh, seems to be coming closer and closer uh, through uh, through the beginning of the uh, 13th century and is and culminates with the uh, General Assembly of Iceland accepting the Norwegian king as king of Iceland in 1262. And so in this period, we have these uh, uh, families that are, are competing for power and um, a part of their competition is to create these sagas of Icelanders, the, these sagas about their uh, distant relatives who initially took land in Iceland as um, both a way of showing off, of course, and sort of building up your, your character, but but also as a way of, of demonstrating their right to the land. And that's how uh, a figure like Eil Skatla Krimson becomes very important. There are some uh, scholars who believe that uh, it was actually Snorri Sturluson who wrote his saga and and told his story. We don't know if that is true, uh, but uh, you could say that based off of when you read the saga, you realize that the, the, the person who wrote this saga, or maybe persons, um, had a vast knowledge of Nordic mythology and uh, the sort of pre-Christian past in Iceland, the Viking Age in Iceland. And that is, that is used to embellish the saga and, and create this image of Eid Skatakrimson, who is otherwise, uh, simply just known from, um, from the Book of Settlements and, and also from various skaldic poems that are attributed to him in the medieval period. And that's really how you create a saga. You, you take, um, a figure that is known from historical sources and then you emplace them in a narrative that is probably built around uh, sort of oral stories, folk tales about this figure, um stories that have been passed on in the family. And then uh if there are skaldic poems or or uh, single skaldic stanzas that have been attributed to this figure um um either because he actually created them or simply through tradition, then you add that into the story and then you you create this uh almost a novel, basically, uh, uh, about this person's life. And um, and that's what we're seeing in the 13th century, that, that these stories are being designed by these uh, prominent families to um, make, uh, make them look better, so to speak, in their uh, competition for dominance in Iceland.
0: So now, I'm assuming because of the sheer number of Icelandic sagas uh, that we have today, that when uh you know the Vikings came to Iceland, correct me if I'm wrong, but they perhaps didn't all come in one wave, that they were that the arrival of new settlers as written in the sagas was spread out over a period of years and years. But would these and it, after you answer that question, would the various, you know, saga personalities, you know, Egil, Scala Grimson and, you know, perhaps Odd the Deep Minded, would these personalities have met each other or would it have been totally different parts of Iceland and different time periods?
1: Um, so there are definitely uh, uh, overlaps between them. And, and there are uh, interactions, uh, if nothing else, uh, vicariously through some of their descendants or, or uh, um, family members in, uh, in that period of time. It, it is true that uh, the, uh, the process, of course, stretches over a longer period of time. Um, Ari Frodi uh, says that uh, in 930 AD, uh, Iceland was fully settled, and uh, no more uh, settlers were coming to Iceland. And this is a little. This has always struck me as somewhat curious. Uh, uh, really, would would the situation be that that uh, uh, people in in Norway, for instance, uh, received a message saying, "Oh." Uh, there's no more land to take in Iceland. So, so, so there's no need to come. And then they would just stay home. I mean, if we look at migration histories across the world, I mean, not least this country, the United States, that's not how that works, right? <laughs> People still keep coming. <laughs> of course, <laughs> what, what, what we're probably dealing with here is a, a, a compounding of different things. It, it's probably true that at that period of time, uh, in the 930s uh, so many people had claimed uh, land in Iceland that there probably wasn't much more to uh, to to take but um whomever else came there later would probably then uh, uh, become tenants at, in uh, at somebody's uh, farm or even move on to Greenland because Greenland is discovered in the 980s and um uh, legend, according to legend at least by eric the red and uh it looks like there was a, a considerable influx of people from iceland uh, into uh, greenland in in that uh first 50 years in the uh from the uh, 980s to to some sometime in the mid uh, thousands um but what we uh what we could probably uh um uh, also talk about in this regard, and th- this is uh, part of the my personal uh, theory, some of the research that I have uh, worked on, is that around the, or in the 930s, we have a massive volcanic eruption in Iceland, the so-called Eltgjau eruption, that has been, yeah, it's a, this is a really interesting uh, feature, because it's not really mentioned in any literary sources, except for one a uh, uh, short entry about a man named Knupper who uh, took land uh, in uh, the impacted area uh, south uh, of uh, Myrdalsjökull, where the um, um, where the eruption took place. And uh, he, the, the the entry simply tells us that he had to move because lava flowed over his area. Now Elkjau, as a <laughs> volcanic eruption, it was immense. Uh, the only other comparable uh, volcanic eruption we know from historical time in Iceland is the seven eighty three to eighty four uh, Laki Giga eruption that disrupted life in Europe. Um, we have uh, accounts from, for instance, Scotland about how um, vegetation is dying and and the sky is is yellowish. Um, various uh, 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 historians of uh, uh, or Various volcanologists have suggested that about 100,000 people uh, uh, in Europe died as a result of the sulfuric gases from this eruption. And there are also historians who have suggested that uh, the uh, ensuing famines in in Europe actually uh, impact the French Revolution. So yeah, so it's become sort of a a modern common saying in Iceland that, that the Icelanders were responsible for... For the French Revolution. And so, if we, if we look at the impact that, 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 the Laka Giga eruption had on Europe and we transfer these ideas to, uh, to the Elkiau eruption in 934 that lasted for about six years, we might assume that that actually, uh, was a, a considerable calamity to the population in Iceland. What we know from the, uh, the Laka Giga eruption is that in some Areas of Iceland, up to twenty five percent of the population died as a result of um, poisonous uh, um, uh, um, gases uh, that would uh, settle as sediments uh, layers in the um, in the uh, in the grass, so that the sheep would die, and so that that would create a famine. We also know that um, uh, this. El eruption actually impacted uh, life in uh, as far as way uh, as far away as the Middle East and China, because there are records of how uh, uh, people suffered from famine uh, across that area as well. So this was a, a, a volcanic eruption that went hemispheric and disrupted life across the northern hemisphere, and so. We may assume that part of this notion that people stopped coming to Iceland in the 930s probably also has to do with this volcanic eruption. Consider being, being a Viking in, in, in Norway, for instance, and you're, you're you know, battling with these ideas of like, should I go to Iceland, should I not? And then you hear about this volcanic eruption. You might even be um, uh, impacted by it yourself. And then you say to yourself, well, maybe I should probably just stay home. So that might actually also be part of the situation.
0: Wow, that's fascinating. That certainly has a enormous ripple effect across the whole of Scandinavia and certainly Western Europe and even further. Okay, so this is going down an entirely new rabbit hole, but you know, you talk about these volcanic eruption, you know, that would have meant something to the Icelanders. I mean, other than the total destruction of their land and livestock. What do you think? the Icelanders thought about the volcanoes and sort of based on your research, what did that mean to them? I mean, was this a sign of the coming of Ragnarok or something to do with the battles of of Norse myth? Or was this some sort of punishment? What did they make of these volcanic eruptions?
1: So there are various theories on this. Um, uh, For instance, uh, first of all, the notion that Ragnarok uh, has uh, some relationship to vulca- uh, volcanism is a very old theory that was initially posed by a uh, 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 Bertha Philpotts in 1905 and um and uh, she wrote that the uh, that the, the giant surtur is probably uh, a uh, a figure that has been inspired from volcanic eruptions and i very much agree with that and uh, so does Scholarship in general uh, it's, its sort of a standard notion that, that Surte and his emplacement in the process of Ragnarök uh, refers to a, a, some kind of experience of volcanism. So a, a, recent, um, a recent paper uh, written by a volcanologist uh, uh, has suggested that, uh, uh, in, um, as, as the Icelanders experienced this Elkjau eruption, uh, they, uh, interpreted, uh, this in context of, uh, Judgment Day, uh, uh thanks to the sort of, uh, the presence of Christians in the country. And, and he has suggested, uh, his last name is Oppenheimer. He has suggested that, um, in fact, this was part of the, the conversion process. Uh, to christianity where, where people experienced this massive eruption and then it was contextualized in the uh, uh, in the christian beliefs as part of judgment day and so that sort of spurred a, a rush to to convert to christianity now personally my theory is that the this uh, is probably a lot more complex and and um and it's not like uh, the Icelanders is uh, only experienced the uh, elqo eruption during the Early period of time in the uh, uh, in the country, they also experienced other eruptions, and uh, my theory is that they uh, contextualized these eruptions in their uh, 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 sort of mythological baggage from from mainland Scandinavia and Europe. Some of which uh, is uh, perhaps influenced by Christianity, but of course, it has its core in this pre-Christian. Uh, Scandinavian religion. And we might even see in this context the development of a society that uh, is focused on this trauma of resource scarcity uh, in context of uh, such a massive destructive uh, um, uh, volcanic eruption as Elkjau. And this might actually be part of this group competitiveness that you see in the Icelandic society all the way until. Iceland is taken over uh, by an outside force in the form of Norway, where uh, you have these kin groups who constantly compete over resources and land resources with one another. This is uh, the uh, what you would call the foundational teleology of uh, Nordic mythology, as snorri Ötlösen has recorded it. We constantly have battles between the Æsir, the gods, and the Jöhtnar, the giants. And uh, these battles are always uh, centered around who's got the right to exist and who's uh, got the right to resources in, in this uh, mythological society. If we compare that to other cultures that uh, in various ways have existed with, uh, uh, with very uh, active volcanic uh, areas around them, It, it kind of looks similar. You can go to Papua New Guinea and, and see various uh, uh, peoples there having formulated, uh, mythologies and, and ritualistic patterns, uh, and even war patterns based off of something that looks like a logic that originates in volcanism. The same with Hawaii. Um, we have a very rich mythology about volcanism there. And a lot of this mythology. Uh, uh, connects to kings and heroes and and sort of prominent cultural figures. Um, so uh, my personal theory on this, uh, uh, which I am uh, currently writing into a book called uh, uh, Myth and Environment in Early Iceland, is that the early Icelandic society had a, a sort of a, um, a strong impression of this experience, the trauma, you could call it, of this massive eruption and that generated social patterns uh uh, for uh, uh, the future so to speak
0: that's so fascinating um yeah i mean just how uh natural uh disasters natural calamities would have meant something deeper to the icelanders and certainly reflected um the tales that we hear about uh and the characters of norse myth So interesting. Well, Dr. Nordvig, thank you so much for joining me today. It's always a delight to speak with you. I've certainly learned a great deal, and I'd love to have you back on the show again.
1: Oh, absolutely. This was a pleasure. Um, You are, of course, welcome to uh, contact me anytime for an interview on um, various things about Iceland or pre-Christian mythology, for that matter, in Scandinavia. Thank you for having me.